Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, non-resident at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Friday, January 26th, and I'm delighted to be here with Tara Kabash. Tara Kabash is a Palestinian-American who was a political appointee of the Biden administration in the Department of Education. He resigned from his post this month over the Biden administration's handling of Israel's war in Gaza. Tarek, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Peter. It's also weird just to hear you say this month. It feels like almost an eternity, but here we are, <laughs> just a few short weeks. I can imagine it's been a pretty busy time for you. Um, maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about the experiences, the family history that 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 has informed your views on this issue of Israel-Palestine. Yeah, I'm happy happy to dive in. Um, so, like you said, I'm a Palestinian American. I'm a Palestinian Christian descending from generations of Palestinian Christians. Um, I grew up here in the states. I'm a first generation um, Palestinian American. My parents came here um, at different times and met here in the states, um, but you know, I largely grew up in um, an immigrant household, like millions of Americans uh, across the country, um, you know, with some ties to my roots, but largely, you know, kind of shielded from all of the, the horrific realities that many Palestinians face every single day, um, and have faced for decades when it comes to the ongoing occupation, the lack of equal rights, um, the constant dehumanization. I think, you know, you still feel that last part here in the diaspora here in the United States, particularly as an Arab, as an Arab man um, growing up in the in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and so for me, um, you know, understanding my family's history was really important to understand why, you know, we are where we are learning from my parents about the importance of education um, the fact that, you know, my grandparents didn't have an opportunity to get an education. My parents valued education very deeply. Um, they really encouraged me and my siblings to um, to hold that very dear to our hearts. I think that was so important for us because, you know, they grew up in the aftermath of 1948. But, you know, my dad had a lot of siblings who were alive during the Nekba and who uh, were forcibly displaced from their homes um, in Yaffa or Jaffa. And, um, and I heard stories from my aunts telling me about how they had to walk dozens of miles to find some sort of safety and security. Um, I remember hearing stories about how, you know, my grandma carried my uncle, who was a newborn baby, how my aunt carried her two-year-old sister um on essentially this march of death where they saw people starving they saw people dying in the streets and really could do nothing about it and all had to leave everything that they knew they left their homes they left their work they left loved ones they left friends um and the one thing that you know we were always reminded of and instilled was that, you know, anything can be taken from you, your homes can be taken from you, your livelihood can be taken from you, but your education, the knowledge that you have is not something that can be taken from you. Your identity cannot be taken from you. And so be proud that you're a Palestinian, be proud that you are educated and that you have resources and support and loved ones around you who want to see you succeed and want to see you make the world a better place. And that's something that 
has just been with me from the very beginning. And one reason why I care so deeply about, you know, working in education, addressing equity issues, and, you know, join the administration in, um, in the very early days to be able to help make America a better place and to help improve our education system. So tell me about how you got connected to the Biden administration and, and whether initially, as you again, you're working on educational policy, not foreign policy, but whether you initially had any misgivings as you got, you know, about about the policies that he had enunciated as a candidate, uh, you know, when it came to, to Israel-Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I've been working in the federal higher education policy space, working on consumer protection issues and student loan issues and just access and affordability for the better part of a decade here in Washington, D.C. For me, you know, addressing racial equity and educational equity gaps was a really important issue that, you know, I spent my life really working towards. And in that work, you know, you when you work on federal policy, you are always somewhat connected to whatever administrations are um, really setting the policy. You, um, a lot of your work gets in front of congressional offices. And so there's some level of uh, politics that gets involved, obviously, like as like a researcher, as an advocate, um, my work was traditionally nonpartisan, but I think as an individual, it was very important to me that our elected officials hold values that, you know, align with my own values. For me, it was pretty clear early on and for most of my adult life that Democrats more clearly aligned with my values, supporting humanitarian issues, addressing those equity gaps, recognizing social justice issues, supporting women's rights, supporting, you know, preserving our environment. Um, and addressing climate change, like across the board on domestic policy and to a certain extent foreign policy issues, it was clear to me that um, as a progressive, as someone who believes in a lot of the same issues that a lot of Democrats believe that it was more in line with me to help support and advance um, democratic politics as well. And so while in my normal everyday work, I was not doing political work, um, you know, I volunteered on numerous occasions for Democratic candidates, uh, phone banking, you know, door knocking, and there was an opportunity to help the campaign in a volunteer capacity to help shape some of the uh, education policy agenda for um, for the campaign. And I jumped at that opportunity because it was something like I said, I care very deeply about this and I was willing to put in dozens of hours a week on top of my full-time job to ensure that those policies reflected um, the growing and urgent needs across American higher education, across a, a broken student loan system. And I think that there was a lot of really important work that was happening. Uh, with respect to your other question around, you know, what, um, what my thoughts were on like possible misgivings related to the president's foreign policy approach, his history, his past positions. You know, I think because I felt like I was in a space where, um, you know, there was some alignment on the domestic issues that I, you know, have professional expertise on, because I think generally um, my particular position on, um, you know, 
the importance of humanizing Palestinians and, you know, the broader Palestinian struggle and fight for equal rights and liberation was not necessarily the top of mind for, um, you know, any campaign in that moment. I think there are obviously huge risks to a second Trump term uh, as someone who was very clearly supportive of the, like, arguably the most extreme Israeli regime that we have seen to date, I think that it was, it felt at the time that there was significantly less risk to the region and to, from a foreign policy perspective uh, on, um, you know, a Biden administration taking over and bringing humanity and a focus on human rights to the table and, you know, making rational decisions um, you know, that's what the president said that he was going to do. And, you know, it's been an unfortunate outcome, what we've seen these last three and a half months. So t- tell me about what things were like then for you inside the administration after October 7th. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of people who were hurting for a lot of different reasons. I have uh, I had peers and colleagues who had uh, friends and family members who, you know, suffered on October 7th. You know, at the same time, like I knew a lot of um, Palestinians who had families who were suffering, suffering from the aftermath, who have family who, you know, who've lost dozens of family members. And the reality that there was not a immediate effort to um, to deescalate and to rely on diplomacy first to both return um, all the affected innocent people, mm-hmm. you know, hostages on both sides, those that were um, taken on October 7th by Hamas, and also those who, um, by the thousands, have been illegally detained by the Israeli government and military, both in the aftermath and also uh, months prior. Um, you know, I think there was a huge level of, you know, emotional and mental harm for people within the administration. Um, and I think that that uh, impact that it had, I think, on me was really profound because, um, you know, something that I wanted to talk about, I felt like having a conversation and a dialogue was really important and finding that dialogue was actually really difficult. And those first few weeks were extremely hard um, for a lot of us because everyone felt so isolated and it didn't feel like there were opportunities to engage with people who are making decisions and enabling what was very clearly like failed policy that was resulting in massive levels of casualties. Yeah. And so did you, um, w- w- did you start by what kind of was the, what, what kind of channels of conversation started opening up? inside the inside the administration among people who were dissatisfied with with the administration's response yeah i mean i think i think people started to find each other because um there was so much dissatisfaction and you know you have affinity groups who eventually were reached out to by the white house just to do listening sessions and there were uh like mental health consultation opportunities um and you know, for the State Department, obviously, like there was guidance on how State Department officials could submit, you know, uh, 
formal dissent cables, but that doesn't really exist in any other federal agencies, which also made it harder just to even vocalize your concerns about the ongoing policies. Um, and so just through those like mental health, let's, let's try and take care of ourselves sessions that I think led to those listening sessions where I think the White House, you know, honestly, it felt more like a check the box rather than we want to hear your concerns and we want to hear about what's bothering you and let's find a way to um, to internalize some of the feedback that we're getting from our staff who, you know, we rely on every single day to advance our agenda. It, was mm -hmm. really, it really felt more like, tell us your feelings, but the people who who should hear it and who need to hear it the most, they're not going to be there. And when did you, what was it that ultimately led you then to, to decide you had to resign? I think, I don't think it was any one particular thing. I mean, I, for me, it was through almost three months of just trying to find ways to communicate the, the frustration with the, the language that the administration used that dehumanized Palestinians. It was the frustration with um, the policies that, you know, the administration was taking to circumvent, um, you know, laws that are designed to prevent our military funding from, um, from being used in violation of international humanitarian law. It was the fact that, you know, we continue to provide that funding uh, with absolutely no stipulations, no concerns. I think the fact that there were resignations uh, like those of Josh Pauls, who made it clear that like being intimately involved in those conversations and the oversight of weapons transfer and making it clear that even in that circumstance, there was not a willingness to engage in real dialogue about the risks and harms that could occur. Um, you know, I think a lot of those types of things raise red flags. I think the fact that the president openly questioned the death counts, I think the talking points um, that led to further dehumanization of Palestinians and allowed for Palestinians to, um, to be harmed in hospitals, um, not just once, but repeatedly and almost on a daily um, click, I think like that was really, that was really, really concerning. And I think seeing all of that happen in real time with no condemnation for the horrific circumstances that Palestinians were living in, um, the fact that there was ongoing collective punishment from nearly day one that cut off Palestinians from food and water and medical supplies and electricity, that there were numerous instances where Palestinians were completely cut off from telecommunication services, like blackouts leading to even worse circumstances that, you know, we couldn't even see the things that that were happening, we couldn't fathom and seeing daily atrocity after atrocity where children, women, journalists, medical professionals, men, you know, people who you see yourself in, that you can't do anything to help them and you see them suffering at that scale it felt like the only thing that i could do at that point was to try 
and you find a way to be even louder about my concerns. And I felt like I had exhausted every opportunity, having talked with the Secretary of Education, having talked with the White House on numerous occasions. It just was clear that no matter who was raising those concerns, the policies weren't changing, our position wasn't changing, and being associated with the ongoing dehumanization and massacring of Palestinians that it really could have been me if I was there like that that's just it was too hard to to stay and I had to leave and when you had these conversations with um did people say you know you're wrong this policy we we think this is the right policy or did, did a lot of people did people you know acknowledge that they had their own concerns with the policy but said you know you just need to stay and try to do good in whatever field you're, you're what was the kind of response that when you went to people uh, and told them about how much distress you were in yeah i i think it, it depends on the conversation obviously <laughs> you know there was a lot of sympathy and understanding on a personal level you know i think people recognized the toll that it was taking on me um and they wanted me to be okay whatever <laughs> that turned into or however it manifested if i needed to take some time just to take care of my mental and physical health they were supportive of that if you know that meant that i work on other issues so that i can really ensure that i'm still making a difference and helping people you know that was something that they were supportive of i think even to the point of like the day that i resigned the conversation i had with the secretary he was nothing short of supportive and empathetic and hopeful that I can find a path to continue to do really important work. Um, you know, he was um, gracious and um, a friend throughout. But I think where where the line kind of ended was what our willingness is, is in terms of changing the direction and acknowledging the horrific circumstances that we are creating and, and continuing. Um, and I, I don't think I ever got that from the administration. I don't ever think that there were circumstances where people in positions of power were willing to say, what is happening is wrong. What we are doing is wrong. We disagree with this, but there is nothing we can do to change it. And I think that kind of shows that it's, it's within our power. We're, we're just ignoring our role in the continued circumstances. Do you, did you have you talked subsequently to to other folks uh, who have, who are thinking about resigning? Yeah, I've heard from a lot of folks over the last few weeks. It's been actually an incredible um, response, a ton of positive feedback. Um, you know, people who have told me that they are hopeful because they feel like there is maybe a path for them to do something similar. And I've, I've heard from numerous people who have shared um, that they're thinking very seriously about leaving. I haven't seen anything happen yet, obviously. And hopefully with today's news, obviously the ICJ raising concerns, um, you know, I think that makes it real a real possibility that people see that our government's continued um, support of the Israelis' offensive actions in Gaza 
creates further risk to both the United States's international position, but also um, just our overall complicity in um, what's happening, which um, which is really concerning. And hopefully that encourages people that, you know, there there isn't much else that we can do short of uh, completely changing course other than leaving. One of the things that I think has been interesting, you know, in, in this case, which I, I can't really recall seeing um, before is the way is is the way in which people who have stayed inside the administration have essentially been organizing inside their own administration against the administration's policy, which is really quite striking to watch. I'm wondering if you think that's those efforts are ongoing, if you think they have any uh, possibility of having a positive effect. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, at this point, I think mm -hmm. we're asking for straws to figure out what will have an effect, what could, you know, change the tides of the water, even mm -hmm. by a fraction. I think the reality is that there's pressure coming from all sides, and that includes from within the administration, both from political staffers. It seems like there's some pressure from uh, career civil servants as well. We've seen it from the State Department to USAID to dozens of other federal agencies that have you know, send some kind of message, whether that's through an anonymous letter or continued anonymous actions. I know there was a vigil yeah. uh, before the holidays uh, last year. Um, I guess it was right after Hanukkah, but um, there was also, I think most recently, just uh, announcement yesterday related to the um, that feel-good party that I think the chief of staff put on for folks that... Um, I think I saw it on Dear White Staffers, there was a call for people not to attend that because of the ongoing uh, situation in Gaza. And um, it doesn't seem like there there are people who are letting up and it does feel like the constant um, dissent, both internally and externally is taking a toll on, um, on the administration in some way, on the campaign in some way. Is it going to change the policies? I don't know, but I don't think anyone knows what will or won't change um, our current position right now. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about why it is that the Biden administration has pursued this this path. I mean, if you have if it's I've heard some people speculate that this is just Joe Biden's own gut instincts and perhaps lack of ability to truly humanize Palestinians in the way he can humanize Israeli Jews, or whether it's a group of people around him who may not have that many folks who have backgrounds like you who are in positions of real power um, on foreign policy, or one wondering if you have thoughts about why you think, because this is clearly the Democratic Party base is not where this administration is at this moment. Um, and yet the administration is generally hewing to this policy. I'm curious if you have thoughts about why that is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. This is not where the Democratic Party's base is. It's not where younger voters are. It's not where voters of color are. I think it has real long-term concerns for uh, the party, both in 2024 and beyond, because the position that the president and the administration are staking out undermines a lot of the president's message. I think the president has talked about protecting American democracy in this moment, but he's not listening to his voters. And I think in a lot of ways, his decision to stake out such a clear 
different position from uh, the majority of voters really um, raises concerns about how willing he is to hear his voters and to change course um, amid a threat like Donald Trump. And so I think it's a really, really important question. And the reason for why he's staking out this position, it's really hard to say, um, you know, particularly in the context of, you know, his empathy, both to Israeli Jews, but also to Ukrainians, for example, you know, I think he was extremely empathetic to the Ukrainian struggle following the Russian aggression. And I think a lot of people expected a similar type of response to Palestinians. But I think decades of dehumanization of Palestinians by our government, by our media, um, to, and, and I think the ongoing occupation that has led to, I think, unequal rights for Palestinians has created this, um, this circumstance where Palestinians aren't treated as human, they're not treated as equal, and it's okay to do that because, you know, there's something that makes them less worthy of that humanity. And I think that's wrong. I think it's racist. And I think it's really dangerous. So my last question is, I'm just curious if, if I hope this is not too personal, but I wonder how your parents reacted when they heard about the decision you were making, given on the one hand, they had sacrificed so much for your education and for you to be able to have this remarkable position that you were jeopardizing. And on the other hand, you were doing it because of, you know, your commitment to, to Palestinians. I'm just curious how, how they reacted to that. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents are the prototypical Palestinian parents who just want to make sure that their kids have better opportunities than they did. And for them, their biggest worry was my own safety. Um, they didn't want me to put myself in a situation where I endangered myself, that I risked my financial security. They wanted me to make sure that I could continue to live the life that they tried so hard to create for me. And so I think after I was able to communicate to them why it was so important to take a position to publicly say something, to raise my voice, and that I would be okay, given all of those other circumstances and concerns, I think they were really supportive. They, um, they've been encouraging, they have been, um, you know, just the best parents that I could ask for. And um, I appreciate them every single day for the support and everything that they've been able to provide for me. And if there's one thing that I can do to help them be able to, you know, go visit where, go visit their home to be able to, to see the places that they grew up and to help, you know, millions of Palestinians living the diaspora to be able to do that too, you know, that, that means more to me than, um, than holding on to um, a job that's, you know, helping millions of Americans as well, but also, you know, temporary where I can continue to also still help people from other perches. So. Um, Tarek, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, and I just want to thank our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, fmep.org for resources 
related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMEP's Occupied Thoughts. Mm-hmm.